My guest on today's show is Damon Pistolka, founder of Exit Your Way, a firm that helps businesses sell their companies. What's unique about Exit Your Way is that before it tries to sell a business, it helps the business's owner increase their company's value, often working with clients for three to five years. Then the company can net a much higher sale price and have a higher probability of actually completing a sale. Trust me, that can often be a difficult thing to pull off. Damon loves to work with manufacturing clients. He's a mechanical engineer who grew manufacturing companies internally for decades. If you're looking to buy or sell a manufacturing business, you're going to love this. This is Swarfcast, the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graff. As listeners of this podcast know, my family company, Graf Pinkert, has been buying and selling used machine tools all over the world for the last 80 years. Every day while selling machinery, we talk to owners of machining companies who tell us they want to expand their business through acquisition. We also encounter a lot of owners of companies who are ready to exit but don't have successors. This inspired us to start a new business service. Graf Pinkert Acquisitions and Sales, in which we serve as consultants for precision machining companies who want to buy or sell their businesses. There are a lot of business brokers out there who can list your company. But for the most part, those people are generalists. They may not have even heard of precision machining. Another unique thing about working with Graf Pinkert is that we often have a personal relationship with both the potential buyer and seller putting us in a rare position to evaluate if the two parties are a good fit for each other. Go to graphpinkert.com to contact us for a consultation to see if your sales or acquisitions needs are a good fit for our services. Mention this podcast and we will give you a free tabletop valuation of your company's equipment. Click on the link in the show notes. I am very honored to be with Damon Pistolka, co-founder of Exit Your Way and host of the Faces of Business podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today, Noah. This is such a pleasure. I was on Damon's podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he has a live podcast, which I am in awe of because that's like taking this whole thing to another level. I tried this the last week and... um uh, let's just say I need to work on it. Um, so first, let's jump into getting a brief overview of Exit Your Way, um, just so people have a little context. What what does your company do? Well, what we really do, Noah, is we help business owners that want to grow their value and prepare for sale and eventually sell their business. You know what we we've got a business brokerage. We had it for my partner had it for a number of years, and I started working with him. and And I soon realized that a lot of the people that wanted to sell a business were not able to sell a business just because it. You know, we can have a lot of smart technical people, but they, you know, if you're doing everything, if you're the brains in it, and and it's it's like that's you're the value when the business you try to sell the business, you know. Um, and it, so it really limits you. It limits you a lot. And, yeah. They own a job uh, rather yeah, than they own a job. Basically they own a job and you can transfer that job to somebody else and sell your business. Say you got a, you know, like in you guys case, you got a machine shop, you can sell it to the machine shop down the street. But you know, if you build that thing up to the point that the machine shop down the street or somebody else, um, in the industry can't buy, and it's big enough that, a an investor has to get into it. It has to be more than just a job. And that's where we really started because we worked with investor-owned companies prior to what we do, and we would buy, build, and sell. And that's what we're helping people do now. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to dig deeper into that in just a second. But first, give me your five-minute bio. I know you have some uh, manufacturing background, which is awesome for our show. You know, I've interviewed a couple people who talk about doing some similar things about helping people's business get its act together, et cetera. But it's nice to interview somebody who speaks our language. 
So tell me how you got to where you are. Well, it was, it was kind of an accident in the beginning. I mean, serendipity. I was to, yes, it was. It was serendipity. I mean, it was, it was, I, all the way back to college, right? I, I uh, got to college and got there and I, people thought I was going to go on agriculture because I grew up on a large farm in South Dakota. And I had a friend of mine that I met in the dorm that was, he was in engineering and I was like, what's this engineering stuff? So after the first semester, I started taking more engineering classes and I was like, oh man, I like this physics and some of the math and this kind of stuff. And I've always been the kind of that. I, so finally I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to do a mechanical engineering degree. And I still didn't really understand what the hell I was going to do when I was done. Other than they said, well, you get to design stuff and build things. And that's, that's all me. I mean, growing up on the farm, we, we would be building and fixing and doing all kinds of stuff like that. So I like to work with my hands and do that stuff. And, uh, eventually I, I got an internship with a manufacturing company, like my sophomore year or something like that. I just, somebody said, Hey, there's internship and I got it. And what kind of engineer were you, or that was just sort of general engineering at the time. You know, yeah, I was in general engineering at that point, but I, but I was, uh, I was actually in like an assistant in an R and D prototyping place. Well, what I didn't realize it, they didn't realize is they unleashed me inside of a little machine shop to, and that had things like we could cut metal. We could, we had little Bridgeport mills, we could mill stuff. And so I was making prototype parts and I was making, and we were, we were doing electronic, it was an electronic test equipment manufacturer. So I would make housings, I'd make the feed, I'd make the knobs, I'd make all this kind of stuff that went on it. And it I spoke like, to you. Oh yeah. It was just like, this is like, holy heck. I've never played with this equipment like this before. And it is so much fun. You know, they, I, I can remember that first thing I said, dude, you can't work more than this many hours in a week. I said, well, I really like it. <laughs> so it just started off like that, you know? So I, 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 one of their um, customers or one of their suppliers, when this was not in my college town is, I don't know, a little ways away. This is in and, South Dakota. Uh, it was in South Dakota. Yeah, it was in South Dakota. And it was in Sioux Falls is where I was at in this. It was the biggest town in South Dakota. You're in Chicago. You kind of know Sioux Falls. But the college was in Brookings. It's like 50 or whatever miles north of there. So we go back to school in the fall. And when I was there, they said, hey, there's this molding company in Brookings that we buy a lot of stuff from. You should talk to them. So I, so I did, and they didn't have anything at the minute, but they said, Hey, I think in the spring or something, we're going to, we're going to look at it. Well, I got a call like a month after they said, well, we decided to do it now. Come on in. Well, I got a job there in a molding company again in the tool room, which it was even cooler because they had some stuff that was, you know, I forget it was kind of not the tape kind of stuff, but you had the old Fanook controls on it or you could nice. program stuff in, right? So what year is this? Cur- this is like 85. Okay. 80, no, 86, 87, something like that. So they were growing really fast. This molding company was growing really fast. And what I didn't realize is like, I was going to get to do whatever I could, honestly. And so they they started out, I was drafting molds, I like hand drafting molds. They taught me how to do it. And I was like, okay, I can start drawing this. And, you know, and, and this whole visualization of these things and, and putting it on the big old thing was a lot of fun. But long story short, I was able to, you know, put their first uh, CNC controlled machines in their first cam software, just tons of stuff like that at the beginning. That was so much fun. And they were growing so fast that we hired a bunch of engineers. I worked right through college, got out of there. And, and eventually, I don't know, six, seven years later, I had already built a couple facilities for them because they were growing so fast in the in the local area. And they said, hey, we're going to build a plant in Tennessee. Do you want to go down there and build it and run it? And I'm like, yeah. Were you a mechanical and engineer? Yes. Yes, I was. I was a mechanical engineer at that time. So I was able to go down there and we built a ground up. It was, it was literally a cornfield in between Memphis and Nashville in this little town called Lexington. And we, they're still there. They're a lot bigger now than they were when I was there, obviously. But I built it, ran it for five years. I traveled all over the Southeast going to, you know, everything from a pure Denzel plant to you go, I was in a lot of these seat manufacturers, fire extinguishers, just anything you could think of. Anybody that was buying plastic, the hand tools, all these hand tool, Porter Cable, Campbell Housefield, all these different places, just all over the South. And that was such a learning experience. And you were learning from what each 
place was doing their process. Yeah, each place was doing. And we were, and we, over that time, we started out with a very small amount of seed business when we built that because out of South Dakota, they had some customers down there, had some salespeople down there. And, and what we were able to do is we turned that into, at that time, quintupled it. So it was only like seven, eight million dollars worth of business when I left five years later. But we had done a lot of fun stuff. We were able to, we were the first, first facility in the company that ran 24 seven, which was super cool to be able to do that. We were, we were the, the facility that ran the lowest defect rate out of anyone um, because we had to learn how to do that supplying the automotive and the television plants and everything else that we were doing, electronics companies and the tooling, because their income and quality requirements were 200 parts per million, which is ridiculously low uh, defect rate. But it really drove us to be super, super good at what we did in the molding facilities. Well, that was a family-owned company. I was able to go as that I was as high as I could get in that company, and I moved moved to another company. And without knowing it. I moved into a company that was investor owned and what we were doing there, we were making checkout counters for grocery stores across the United States, had two facilities, one in Tennessee, right, right where I was and another one here in Seattle and didn't know anything about it. So I started running a facility for them. It was a couple hundred thousand square feet at that time. I think there were 150 or 200 employees in it and, and had a lot of fun with that. And a year and a half later, uh, the owner came to me and said, Hey, I want you to, I want you to run the company. So that's how I got to Seattle. And now I had two plants that I was running and, and different things like that and had a ball with it because I, I figured out, not me, the, the team, I was able to put together a really good team and together we figured out how to do something that just that was so fun in the industry because that industry was a six to eight week lead time kind of thing. The checkout counters. And the, the checkout counters. So we'd have Safeway or we'd have... Albertsons or, you know, whatever's in your area, Meyer or somebody like that, that's probably in your area, you know, they'd order from us and, and we were Kroger, Kroger, we did Kroger nationally as well. So we were doing QFC and all the other ones they've got. And, uh, they would order, it'd be six, six to eight weeks later, we'd have their product done. But what I had is I had 400,000 square feet of manufacturing between the two facilities. And I had about a hundred thousand square feet between the two facilities that all it did is held orders that were setting there that we had finished for a certain date, but the construction schedule changed. So I'm sitting here one summer because summer was always the busiest time. These th- these holding areas would just get jam packed full of, of product, right? And and then inevitably you have have someone ram a forklift through the side of one of them, <laughs> you know, or something stupid like that. And I'm like, why do we have? $2 million of finished products sitting here. And someone just said, well, that's just the way it is. You know, we got a six week lead. And this was a long term. It's never good when somebody says that's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a good the way sign. it is because they're changing, changing construction schedules around on that. I said, well, he said, because, you know, they place an order eight weeks early and then, you know, the construction schedules change and we never know. I said, well, how close to the delivery date does a construction schedule not change? And they said, well, you know, four weeks, nobody changes after four weeks because, you know, in a new store, food will be coming in and they got, every, you know, everything's coming after four weeks. I said, okay, let's figure out how to make these things in two. And everybody thought I was absolutely effing crazy. And I, I said, if we can make them in two weeks, I've just taken $2 million out of our inventory that's setting here. I said, that was my first goal. And I was like, I didn't even think about the other implication, implications in it. So we got the team down and started talking about it. And ultimately, we found design things where we had, it was a 60-year-old company too. So you designed something one way, I designed it a little bit different. They both look the same on the outside. Why the heck don't we make them the same on the inside? And we did those kind of simple things. And we literally, within about three years, took took our, our, where, our manufacturing space from uh, 200,000 square feet in each place down to 100,000 square feet in each place. And we got it so we could do them in 10 business days. And, it, and what it did for us, A, you know, space, efficiency, we dropped the cost by about 25% too by doing it, our cost. And uh, so we were more profitable. And what we could do though is we could kill our competitors because we could deliver in four weeks, not even pushing us to the two weeks. We would say four weeks for new customers. And what were the competitors doing? Six weeks? 
six to eight weeks because that's what it had been forever. And they were set up to do that. And, and we just started taking customers at will because we were lower cost and we could go faster. And I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. It took us a year and a half and we got bought. It was that fast. It was just like, we started to make waves, you know, cause we were able to do some really fun deals. Like this was the time when Dollar Tree stores were expanding like crazy and they would, they would pump out, they pump out hundreds of stores in a year, new stores. And we said, Hey, anywhere in the U S 48 hours, we'll have, we'll have product to your store in 48 hours. We just con bought them. We had like, I forget it was four. Okay. So what happened then after you got bought out? That after we got it bought out, I, w- I did turnaround work for investors. The investors kept kept having me work in different companies. I was running, and and that's when I really got into machining. All right. So, like, was it a private equity firm? Yeah, it was owned by a partially two independents and a private equity firm. And that private equity firm had me start working in some of their other companies that needed turnaround work. So they just were like, I could see that you're the one that was responsible for yeah, getting, yeah. getting you know, everything. <laughs> yeah. And that was such launched my career. They had me come and do that. And I did that for the next, I don't know how many years with them and other people. And, and I, in the, in, after that though, the checkout counter place was cool. And we machined in there with, with CNC controlled routers, you know, like 10 by 12 bit or whatever the heck they were. But the fun stuff when you talk about machining is after that, because some of these were, were aerospace companies up here in Seattle where we had the, the big five, well, big for aerospace, uh, in the companies I was in, it's not big in the world. Cause I saw some of these hundred foot long, you know, multi-head five axis things making these great big aerospace parts, but we had some 10 foot by, you know, it was eight by 12 by four foot envelope kind of things. We had a few of those and they were, they were, I forget what the name, they were like SNK machines and they had this real articulating head. <laughs> it was just amazing what they could do. So you love, you love the iron. You love the technical stuff. Oh, God. Yeah. But, you, can, I, but I, you also like just the business aspects of yeah. it all. Which thing speaks to you? The business speaks to me more. But the connection between the iron and the business is where I really geek out and have a lot of fun. Because when you can see the connection between a machine running and the bottom line in your business, things get a lot clearer. And when you can look at a financial statement and go, there's something in here that means we should go there and talk to people and learn more about it and see what we should do. That's where really my brain, that the engineering logic that it was drilled into my head and, and stuff over the years has really become fun because I can diagnose business things by looking at financials and walking around and seeing mm-hmm. what's going on. But your company, you work with lots of different ones, software. Yes, we focus in on on manufacturing, e-commerce, construction, and and uh, some occupational rehabilitation. So we we really it's not as wide as some with our work with anybody, and we're working with people, equipment, and you know inventory products, that kind of stuff. So I won't so tell the other people that you're working with, but is manufacturing like the one you most want to sink your teeth into, or you you have a great appreciation for all of them? You know, I really, with the ones that I like the most is one I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking to here shortly, uh, in, in the next few weeks is, is I really like manufacturers that sell through e-commerce Interesting, because you, you, you talk about something where data and manufacturing come together and that you can geek out to no ends in about a 400 different ways. So it's like B2C. You know, yeah. Well, B2B. B2B, B2C, doesn't really matter. I oh, mean, okay. Could be um, like MSC or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about, think about something like a, a bulldozer. Okay. Bulldozer is a great example. I'm selling to another company. I, I might be selling my maintenance parts to a distributor. I might sell direct to the customer. I'm manufacturing them someplace too. And how do I connect all that together? And then how do I make sure that it's all working right and we're making money? Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff just... I just geek out on it. I think it's fun. Interesting. All right. I want to get into stuff that manufacturing companies should think about, et cetera. But the first thing that comes to my mind is, so, okay, so you guys are, you're doing M&A, but your thing is you're going in and helping people make their businesses saleable. And the two 
it sounds like a wonderful combination, but the thing that keeps hitting me is when you're really trying to build up a business, I guess there's the whole Simon Sinek why, right? Like if people are just trying to, I guess they're not just trying to, but they have you in there to help them build it so they can sell it. And if you're building something to sell it, I mean, I get it because some people just, they love business, just building something that makes money and that's great too. But if somebody's got a vision, a purpose uh, for this thing, and then they get into, all right, now I just want to get the most money for exiting. I want to know, I'm sure you guys talk about this all the time and I want to know what you observe about it and you know how authentic the people are, et cetera. It's not as cutthroat as, as it, it sounds for, for the people we work with because they're not straight investors, right? They're, they're people that typically want to make a difference in their community and the lives of the people that they will. But the underlying thing is they're trying to generate wealth for their family. And that wealth is going to, they need so much of that to do it, whatever the number is, you know. And that's really what we're concentrating on for them is generating wealth for their family. And that's usually the underlying factor that we're really looking at. And, and, and not to the, to the, I mean, this is why we don't work with investors. We're not with investor owners, but these are, these are people that are, you know, they're in a community. They can make different, they can make different decisions for the long term rather than a short term gain. And it's, it's not like we build and we sell it right away, but it's like we build, we put the team together. We, this thing is going to be set up so that it's going to stay in the community and it's going to work, work for the people there for a long time. And that's, that's the thing that's, that we really, really I see. enjoy. So it's kind of yeah. like they do care about this thing that they're creating oh, yeah. and you're coming yeah. in and. It's not just how we can be more efficient so your family can get more money. It's it's sometimes to the extent of we want a legacy of these parts continuing to be made right. It's not just getting more money for our company. No. That's the thing that's cool about it. And and then and then they can choose who they buy who's who they sell it to, whether it's a a hundred percent. Hundred percent. Because we work with a lot of family offices and that for selling the businesses. I mean, when you talk about somebody that wants legacy, you really look at who's going to buy it. Because there's a lot of family offices that want to invest and hold things for the long term. If you were, if it's big enough to be an investment purchase, and we look at those because we understand what no what what are you as a business owner looking like for your legacy? What do you really not? Is there some people? Some people it's a huge thing. Some people it's not such a big thing. But we want to make sure that we look at that because it has to be sold to the right place. Because you've invested your time, sweat, and and effort. And you've got these people that have invested right alongside you, their time and their history and their life. You know, you can make it a really good long-term thing for the people there if you do to get to the right buyer. I get it. But, you know, what I've seen in our very limited experience of selling machining companies, very small ones, people come in and the first thing they're interested in is I want my employees to keep their jobs I want, you know, they're sort of interested in in this legacy and eventually they're just fed up and they're just like, screw it. You know, I got some money for it. I'm free now. And <laughs> business is business. Like it becomes more like not even is this person going to keep the business going and becomes more is this buyer somebody I can work with? Uh, you know, like they'll take less money. If it's just somebody that they feel like respects them and and they can work with, I, I just, I don't know, maybe we're going on a tangent here, but I, I guess you've given me a really good answer. I, I guess my feeling was, you know, oh, you have one foot out the door and now they're coming in and you're basically just basically going, oh, well, you know, if you give one less olive in the jar, you're going to make a lot more money, you know, and then it seems like what you're doing is going in and enhancing people's vision. I mean, that's that's the idea. It's not just yeah. let's cut costs and, yeah, and make no, sure no, make sure the bottom line that. is better. I mean, I'm sure yeah. there's some of that. And then you're also coming in and and then trying to help the owner replace themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of the work we do is team, team building. 
and getting the right people in the right seats because that's it's it's the Achilles heel of almost every small business is that they don't have the right people in the right seats or the people that they have in the seats are not the right people that should be in those seats and they haven't taken the time to de- define roles and responsibilities as they go because you know my business at one size is much bit different than my business at the other size and when i hit that that higher level i plateau and you start to find things where, okay, we start missing stuff. Things start, you know, quality problems, delivery problems, all these cost problems start to happen. Well, you all that is, is you, you've moved beyond some of your systems and some of your people. So you either have to help those people grow, get your systems better to do those things. And, and that's where vast majority of our work is to really help that because it's not that we want people to work harder in these, these situations, unless they're just absolutely slacking, which that's, such a minute amount of people that it's not even worth talking about. It's really about getting people the training and the tools and empowering them to do what you really would like them to do as that owner. And when that kind of gets that, that cohesive environment where people are really humming and doing what they need to do, I mean, that feeds on itself. You can grow businesses like that. And, and then you're not worrying about cutting costs because cutting costs only does so much. Growth is where, where it is. Profitable growth is where, adding business value comes from because I can, okay, so I cut 25% of your workforce. That gets me whatever that does. Well, what happens if I grew the top line by 25%? How much better would that be? Or double my top line or quadruple my top line because now we're doing things better and people start to go, oh man, they got something going on. That's, that's where you make your, your best return on your money. And, and as an owner, these owners aren't saying one foot out the door. They're like, this is like they built their perfect classic car. The one that they wanted so bad when they were in high school that they were just, and it's shiny. So how often does it happen where they build the classic car and then they're just like, oh, never mind, I don't want to sell the classic car. It happens. It happens. They do it. They do it. Yeah. And you, and you, your business profits yeah. either way because that's. Yeah, it does. It does. We have we have it set up. So I mean, we we know you can fall in love with your business. That's awesome. How often does that happen? One out of four. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it happens. You love it, right? And we say, cool. That's great. You 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 just went from X to Y, which is usually millions and millions of dollars, right? And it's it's something that yeah, you can fall in love with it. You can stay in another five years if you want. Don't recommend it, but if that's what you want to do, more power to you. If you want to sell it later sell it later. We'll help you. Whatever. It's just, you got to, I mean, when you truly can work with somebody and and be happy about whatever outcome they choose, it's a lot better. I mean, because when you look at the brokerage industry overall, that only gets paid when they sell a business, it sucks for them, sucks for the business owner. And some reasons, some situations, that's the way it should be. But when we work with our clients. Why do you say it sucks for the broker and sucks for the business owner? Well, because in that situation, right? So if we're in a long-term relationship and and because we work with our clients, I mean, short is a year. Most of them are three to five years, maybe even longer or some. So if you work in that long-term relationship and I'm like, hey, if we don't sell it, I don't get paid, me as Damon. I look at that a hell of a lot differently than if we, if you don't sell it and you decide it's just going to be a long-term hold, we get paid no matter what. I'm going to just keep right on going. But if I'm a broker and I'm in there and I only get paid when that thing gets sold, I want to get sold. Why are we not? Why are we waiting? We're at odds. The other thing is, you know, the the first situation is we can help them build. We can really be a partner about what they want for their long term, what they want for their life, their legacy, their family, and 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 really take the time that they want to. Thank you to everybody listening to this It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast, and I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media, or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. 
No, I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. I guess, you know, coming from where I'm coming from on a very, it's a different model. We're smaller. You know, we're not trying to make somebody a graph pinker. We're not trying to, uh, you know, we could give input. But I mean, we're not even, we've never run a machining company. Who, who are we to even, you know, like we, yeah, we have, we have common sense. I mean, we might know what the equipment's worth, but I feel like, I'm sure you encounter people all the time that are just like, I've got something nice here and I'm just tired. Help me sell my business. I I don't feel like improving. Do you sometimes take those clients on if the business is a nice, solid business? If it's a solid business, yes. But, you know, when you look at them overall, there's probably one out of 10 that is. And in that situation, again, I only get paid if I sell that business. So I have to be really picky about whether or not we would even entertain working with someone like that. And it's, it's, it's a shame because that's how that, that industry is built. And it puts a lot of people in at odds with each other when they do that. But it's, I mean, it works, works. People still get things sold once in a while doing that. But yeah, we get people that come to us and uh, I mean, and it's, the thing is funny, it's not profitability. It's not anything. It's how a business is set up. If you really want to, it's so much because we had a business last year that made a million dollars worth of profit. Simple business. The owners were too involved in it and we couldn't get it sold. Couldn't get it sold. They, people start looking at it and they go, oh, too much, you know, million dollars profit. You'd think you'd be able to figure it out. You could hire some people that are really good. Nope. Didn't want to do it. Is the problem often ego? Yes. That, that plays a part in it definitely because people have worked really hard and they believe their business is worth something that it might not be. And the, the second thing, how that ego plays in is that you're telling me that I've made a million dollars every year and I can't sell this thing. I made a million dollars every year. Are you, are you crazy? I mean, look at, I would say the same thing if I didn't know, if I didn't know what I knew about selling, you know, see the market buying, selling business. I totally understand why they think that's, are you nuts? Well, I think they find out pretty quickly. They do. They do. The buyer goes, uh, they do. I got nothing without you. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens in big companies, man. It can, you can have 20, $30 million a year companies that are like that. Hmm. That's interesting. Is it easier to fix something large, medium? small you know the our our clients are typically going to be right around 10 million give or take a few million that we're working with because it's a nice enough size that you can do it you get up over 20 30 million we've got clients are in that range but we've been with them when they were small we've really grown them a long ways but when you start with a 20 million dollar company trying to raise the value double the value how much how much do i have to do when you look at a four million dollar company and I want to double the value getting to 10 or 12 is not nearly as hard and the kind of structural changes and and, you know the the baggage that's already there is a lot less too so what's the first thing you do obviously this is complicated but the first thing you no it's not yeah that's true I I I mean it is a pretty simple concept replace yourself basically yeah you have to figure out how much is it worth first of all it's just do a simple value, market price valuation. Right. That was another thing I was going to ask you about. You know, like people generally play around like three to five times EBITDA for a machining company. And generally it, it seems to go down to three. But maybe that's just because we're not like building the company or anything. Well, it depends upon how it compares to others that they look at, right? Because buyers are going to have looked at other companies, most. And if you're better than them. I mean, if your gross margin is better than them, if your growth is better than the industry, I mean, you're going to get more money for it. If you And if it's set up right with a good team, you're going to get more for it than a, a company that's not doing that. But the value is important for the main reason is that if I, as, as the owner, am making a decision where I should stay in this business or I should sell this business, I should know how much money I'm going to net out before I start the process or get pretty close, right? Because you're going to spend six months to a year trying to sell a business. And if you don't get that value established and go, okay, it's worth a million bucks, but I can live with 750. I can live with 500 and I'm good with 500. So I got, got some room to play going into it. That's okay. But if I, if I get, and I say my, my business is worth about a million bucks, and I need a million and a half or two million. So I'm going to try to sell it for two million. You're just wasting your time. 
You mean how many times have you seen somebody that's going to get double what what a piece of equipment's worth? It's got to be maybe a rare exception, but it's not usually uh, uh, in business. You just don't see stupid money running. Around. Yeah, I, I I know. It's just sometimes there's intangibles. There's sort of good fit. Well, yeah, and that that'll flex the weight at some. But it, but it's not going to fluctuate it to double the value or more. You know, Is, isn't it the right strategy to have the the buyer make an offer for the business? Oh yes. Okay. Yes. So you you said, well, the seller should come up with what he wants or she wants. Are you just saying they should come up with a number that they can go? This would make me happy when I leave. Whether it's the actual, whether that's the actual, they, cause often they don't know what it's worth. Yeah, I don't, it, that, the number you're talking about and the value of the business are two separate numbers. Yeah. And we say, no, you should go to your financial advisor and see what you really need. You may need zero because you've got great portfolio, everything else is good. Or you should, they're going to tell you, you need this much from your business when you, when you get out of it, if you want to just continue the lifestyle you are and doing that. And, and that's really what I'm talking about is that, that you need to figure out, is that what I'm going to get from my business, likely get from my business going to cover the gap? Uh, if there's no gap, then you're like, Hey, cool. This is going to go to a charity or whatever the heck it's going to go to. But in most cases, this is a lot of the owner's personal assets. I mean, this is a lot of their portfolio. So we, we find a lot of times that, you know, they've got other investments, but this still is going to make up half or more of their portfolio for whatever they're going to do next, start a business, just retire, do whatever they're going to do. And that's why it's so important to get with your financial advisor and then, and then get with somebody that actually is going to give you a realistic value that you can go, okay, these things kind of match up. I'm going to be able to, if I can get it sold for this amount of money, I'm going to be pretty good. I think people have, some people have a lot of, have pride though. You know, it's very, obviously it's, my business is awesome. So obviously it should be worth X, you know, whether it's, whether they need that money or not, it makes total sense. It's no different than buying a piece of property, buying a car or whatever. There's a value based on it, based on that model, that thing, the return on the sentimentality the return on it. Yeah. yeah, the mentality every and, and the ego is horrible, and that and that's the number one reason why people don't get a business sold because that ego gets in the way of what it what it's really worth, what they think they should get, and the industry people, you know, business brokers, small to medium size handling small, they're notorious for taking listings and telling somebody whatever the hell they want, you know, for the value just so they get a listing. I and hate when on, people do that with machinery. I'll get you this, I'll get you that, and they're full of crap. And I can get it to you for this much, and you know it's half of what they're going to have to pay. And once they get people in, they know that, well, maybe I'll get them to go in for twice as much you know, if they have to. It's How just, often do you have it where people undervalue their business? Almost never. I mean, we've, we've actually got one right now where somebody came in and we're like, holy heck, you're reasonable. I mean, that's how often it happens. It's like, holy heck, you're reasonable. That's cool. Because usually it's usually it's it, it takes a long time for them really to understand the value, uh, and and the cool part is is if some of our clients we've gone out and helped them buy businesses, yeah, and they see the value, and and then they really understand their value, and they go, oh man, we're paying that for them. Look what I make. I don't make enough yet, do I? Nope, that's what we've been telling you. We got to keep going, <laughs> you know. And it's really fun once they understand it and and really do it. But no one undervalues their business. Well, unless they're just really naive, and you know, that's why you have to ask the buyer. I mean, I'm sure the sometimes they get surprised by how much the buyer wants to offer. Right? You mean think that it's higher than what they they yeah. would expect? Mm, no. I mean, it, it's people, there's enough information out there. When people start to get ready to sell a business, they're going to be reading. They're going to look and, you know, do the Google search. The biggest problem they have is is people will compare a privately held business with a with a public company because there's so much information on public company transactions, even small public companies. And a public company is valued at least double what a private company is. And so it's, you know, they'll see something, oh, we got 10x of revenue for this machining company. Well, is listed on the NASDAQ or something, you know, or part of a public company. I mean, uh, but I mean, in our experience, and again, it's, it's a, you know, small pinprick, but we've seen clients and they just have no idea what their company is worth. 
I don't know. Maybe they just haven't done the research that they. Well, easy way to figure out roughly what your company's worth is just go, okay, if I was taking a 10-year loan, how much cash is my business generating and will it cover a loan for X amount of dollars? So if your business is generating $100,000 cash, uh, right now that will get you about $400,000 in business price based on the, because the, the SBA under 5 million, they, they fund a lot of loans and they require about uh, $1.4 um, for every dollar that you have to pay back on a 10 year note. So you can, you can do these calculations pretty easy. The SBA now, I think they're uh, 10 and a half, 10 and three quarters, something like that. Their interest rate over 10 years. What's my payment uh, for the year? They call it the debt service coverage ratio. So you're going to set up your 10 year loan. It, it gets you really close. Because that's at the end of the day, it's either your business is making enough money to generate that or your equipment is worth more than your business is. All right. So, yeah, rapid fire. What are a few killers, just huge mistakes that that people make on either side? Well, in, in machining, this is a little different, but usually if there's only one customer and that's not a really solid customer, that's a big deal. I ran into a machining company that was doing aerospace work down in St. Louis a few years ago, and they had three owners, and one was a CEO. One was like, had a PhD in something to do with machining, and then another person was their supply chain person, all three owners, all really good at what they did. Um, they were trying to sell it. It was a $20 million company, and they couldn't get offers that were even close to what it was worth because, you know, owners leaving. Uh, when it's when it's done, you know, if you're the if you're the programmer, the setup person and the doesn't matter if you've got a 24 seven lights out facility, you're probably going to have a hard time selling it unless they can train the person. Unless they can train. The, there you go. Stay That's on a, a little point. bit. If they could train. Yeah, if they could train that person and keep them on. That would be that would be good. You've limited your buying pool, but you can in those cases. I, I, I stand corrected there. That's a good point. But it's owner involvement. Uh, it's customer concentration. And if you're in a market that has got a lot of risk, you know, like if you're all in an automotive and right. it, or firearms or yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Any of these that, that, you know, are volatile. It's like, I work with some oil field services people and that's, that's a, you know, crazy up and down sometimes. Uh, you really got to understand where you're at in the cycles and things like that to, to do it. Because if you're in a down cycle, it's going to be hard. There's bottom feeders. Yeah. But I mean, what is something that people do during the deal that can sabotage a deal? Oh, make a big change. Oh, we had one happen two years ago. Uh, totally normal. You got to use red zone thinking when you're, in your, when you're in your business sale. Don't make any changes. Just keep it running steady. Don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guy did this. It was a it was a, a, a company. He had an underperforming part of his company. It's like it's not making me enough money. He shut it down in between. Well, what it did is it took about uh, a third of the profitability out of the company by doing it. And good long term, good long term decision because it wasn't making a lot of money, but it was contributing to the overall and increased the profitability. Well, it dropped the value by a million dollars when he did it, and he got way outside of what he needed. You know, so in, in a normal situation, you just keep going like it is. That Hey, it's not working that great, but it's part of the overall. And that's what it does. And and don't change too much. Just keep it running right. Do you see like lawyers and accountants sometimes messing things up? Yeah. Lawyers are, you, you've got to remember that lawyers are there to help you, not to protect you from everything. They can't protect you from everything. We just finished the purchase of a small company and, and especially in small companies, right? Yeah, we've seen it. They get in and then they add some clause and the people are like, what, what's that? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because if you and I are doing a deal and we hand shook on what we wanted and they're trying to put something in that's, that doesn't make sense to you or I, we can tell lawyers it don't, doesn't need to be in there. You have to you have to control it because they will put you know, you'll get these purchases sale agreements that are fifty pages long for a five hundred thousand dollar sale and you're like listen I don't need a first of all I don't want to spend ten thousand twenty thousand dollars on this with with a lawyer but b two thirds of it is not ever going to apply to me in the world it's like yes 
if you know we got overrun by lava, yeah, we we would want to be protected for that if we were right next to a volcano. But the nearest volcano is four thousand miles away. We don't need to talk about that. You know, it's that's the kind of stuff that comes into it. It's you really got to be able to talk with them and say, okay, what is the real impact of this? Because we we as business owners we deal with risk every day, but lawyers want to try to eliminate all the. We risk. we had we a deal where the lawyer, I mean, the deal had been done, and it wasn't even a huge deal. Like, it, yeah, and the lawyer puts into his whole final statement X amount to be withheld until then, and of course, the owner is like. <laughs> what's this? And I think yeah. this, the buyer didn't even know that the lawyer had put it in there. They're just, they're trying to earn some money, maybe trying to do, trying to make their thing. But it's good. You 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 need them to document the deal oh, absolutely. you want to do. That's the thing. You got to stop them. You got and ask questions always. It's like, why would we do this? What is it going to protect me from? Okay. Yes. No. Because you, you as the person selling it, have to realize and put yourself in the other person's shoes and go, if they shove this across the table to me, what would I tell them? Okay, that's reasonable or no. And and in the last negotiations on the purchase and sale agreement, uh, buyers and sellers got to get comfortable with the fact that the seller is, go- is trying to sell it for more money and the buyer is trying to buy it for less money. It's just the way it is, yeah. right? Don't get offended when they ask for this or ask for that, just say, no, we really can't do that. Give them a reason if you can, or if you just don't want to, just don't get offended. Cause yes. you talk about some of the things that people get offended and then it's just done. They walk away. Well, these guys are blah, blah, blah. Well, they're just asking. They were trying to do it. I think that's another, yeah, that's another thing. People it's need another to, one. I mean, I forgot need, to say that. Just get a, Yeah. Well now yeah. you, <laughs> um, just a couple of things, other, other things I, you know, for everybody's knowledge, Damon, after he interviewed me, you know, he was so gracious. He he said, hey, if you ever want to just pick my brain, I'll set aside an hour and we can talk, you know, and, and, and we did. I mean, I just have to say, you I mean, you're very um, giving of your knowledge, of your time, of, you know, to me, I, you know, we had one conversation. I filled out some form in your podcast. Talk about that, about the point of of giving and giving for free and, and your philosophy, because clearly that's something important to you. Well, it's, it's, it's for me, I didn't realize this until later in life is that you see people that are truly happy and successful. It's because they're giving it. And I, I believe anyway. And I think it's also when people find what they're really, what they believe that, that their higher power has them here to do. And for me, it's to help, help, you know, be a good person with my family and friends and everything like that, of course. But the, but it's really to help people figure this out. Business owners shouldn't be sitting there struggling. And I'll, I'll tell everybody 100% of what I do. I don't care. Tell you 100%. Go do it yourself if, if that's going to make the difference. Because I know if I do that, there's enough people that will need my help. They will need my help. And it proves. It proves itself every day. And the more I help, the more I help people and just give away stuff and show them how to do things the more I have people coming to me that want help and will pay me for it. And it's reciprocity and karma and creating dots. And well, you talk about serendipity, right? That's what comes out of it. It comes out of just out of the goodness of your heart, helping sharing, giving people and, and, and just not expecting. Is this something that, and it's probably a combination. Is this something that you just kind of naturally do? It's just instinctual or is it something that you, you kind of remind yourself sometimes like I ought to be giving, I ought to be, you know, it would be a good thing if I offered my help to somebody, to this person, or is it just, it just comes right out of you. It comes out of you after a while. Okay. But it doesn't, it's not in the beginning. It takes a while and it, and it's still, you fall back. I mean, it's like we're human, right? We forget. Okay. So you do, you remind yourself sometimes. Oh yeah. Yeah. You have to remind yourself. It's like anything. It's like, you know, you, you're trying to change habits in your life. It, you know, you want to quit smoking. You're still probably 20 years later, going to think about it. You know, so it's, it's, <laughs> it gets easier though. And it gets better and better as you, as you go and it, and you keep going and it's really, really fun. It's really fun. Especially, I mean, when you got to find your passion, you get to do it, you get to help people. It's just so much fun. 
Do you have anything else to say to the people of the world? Uh, you know, I meet people every day that would be in seemingly pretty icky conditions that are happy. And I never realized that happiness doesn't mean that I'm, I, for a long time, it took me a long time to realize that you can be happy wherever you're at. If you can work at that, you're going to be a lot better. Things are going to be a lot better. That is really good wisdom. Damon, um, I really appreciate this. This is so much fun. If, if anybody wants to check out your stuff, tell give give a shout out to to yourself. Exityourway.us.com.ca. Yeah, they'll find me there. And the Faces of Business podcast. How many? The Faces of Business podcast, link, LinkedIn, Damon Pasak. How many of those do you broadcast a week? I do two a week pretty regular. So, I mean, I, th- I think I'm up to like 300 and some episodes of that. And then the other shows I do, I do two more of those a week. So we're What are the other shows you do? Uh, manufacturing e-commerce success. I do that Mondays and Fridays and uh, with Kurt Anderson. And then I... Um, do Tuesdays and Thursdays on the face of the business. Man, well, we've talked about it. I don't, you, you clearly are much better at delegating (laughs) and automating than I process, process, build the process and have, have people figure out how to help you have that teach them how to help you. That's what I've done. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Thanks.